We are in Lesson 6, and we're looking at the third church of the Church of the Seven Churches, the Letters to the Seven Churches. Now, I want to remind you, we're studying the book of Revelation, and in, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand that it's really divided into three sections. Chapter 1, and the key verse is chapter 1, verse 19, and from that we see that John is told to write the things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place. And we can divide the book of Revelation based upon that into three sections. We can talk about chapter 1 being the things that he saw, and he saw the risen Christ. The things which are is chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the seven churches. That's where we're at right now. He's really looking at, Jesus is addressing some issues in the churches of that time, which we can gain some principles from. And then the things which will take place are chapters 4 through the end of the chapter, which are the things that will happen in the future. And we'll get there in a few weeks, actually about another month or so, we'll get there and start getting into that discussion as to what John is seeing for the future. So we're in the third church now, which is Pergamos. So let's take a look at this together. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17, and let's see what John records Jesus saying. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who holds the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which... No one knows except him who receives it. Okay, so let's look at a few things about this passage here. First of all, Christ addressed the church, excuse me, the pastor of the church in Pergamos. Now remember, our English translation is doing a literal translation of the word angelos, which is the Greek word here, and it can be translated angel, but it can also be translated messenger. And remember what I said to you. Jesus doesn't need to send a letter to an angel. He just speaks to it. So really it's to the messenger would be a better translation. And the messenger is obviously the pastor. So he's writing to the pastor of this church. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Pergamos. Pergamos was a wealthy city in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, but it was very, very wicked. It was an evil place. People there were involved in pagan cult worship. And so they, they worshipped Athena, which is the goddess of love. They also had a temple there to the emperor. Emperor worship was very big there. They also worshipped Zeus, which was supposedly the father of the gods. And 
Pergamos was also, or Pergamum, it's also called, was famous for its university, and it had a huge library with over 200,000 volumes. It's probably the largest library of that time. So this is significant. I want you to understand this, because when you talk about how Jesus identifies himself, he's going to identify himself in a way that they understand. So you're talking about a, com a community, which is basically a big university city, which prides itself on its huge library. You know, so, uh, and also it was known for manufacturing parchment, which was called pergamena. It was, it was a place where parchment was manufactured. So let's look at how he describes himself here. He describes himself as having a two-edged sword. Now, let me explain to you what that means. In the Bible, the sword is, is a symbolic representation of the Word of God. It's a symbolic representation of the Word of God. So in the Bible, when you see the, the term sword mentioned, and obviously it's used often in the New Testament, the sword of the Lord, or, or when we see this, Jesus comes, he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's not that he has a literal sword coming out of his mouth. It's a figurative picture to help you to understand that he just speaks the Word and it's done. So it's really symbolic of the Word of God. Now it's two-edged, so it has the ability to separate believers from the world. It's two-edged in the sense that it has the ability to separate believers from the world. It also has the ability to condemn the world for its sin. So that's the two-edged nature. We see that from the Scriptures. Now, remember what I told you. With these letters, they follow a, a same pattern here. They... They, they start off with who it's to, they, then it goes to who it's from, a description of Jesus, and then it starts, begins with a commendation, something that he's commending them for. Now, some churches, he doesn't commend them for anything. So, it starts off with a condemnation, then it starts, next part is a rebuke. He tells them what they're doing wrong. Then he gives them an exhortation, what they need to do, and then he gives them a promise. And so what we're coming to now is the commendation. This church is being commended for something here. So I want you to notice what he's commending them for. Look with me at verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here's what I want you to notice. First of all, Christ's knowledge of the church. Christ has an intimate knowledge of the church. Every one of these letters, he says the same thing. I know your works. Now, let me explain something to you. The word know there, in the, in the Greek language, there are actually two different words for know. And with that, there, there are actually two types of knowing. We have one English word to know. So, like, I can know facts. Or I could know Lori. They're actually two different things. I could know facts, which is I know a lot of head stuff. Or I could know Lori by experience. In the Greek language, they were a little bit more specific with one word meaning an experiential knowledge and another word meaning a knowledge of facts. What he's saying here, he's not knowing facts about the church. He knows this church by experience. He knows them intimately. 
He knows exactly what's going on in their midst with every one of them. Now let's stop for a moment. There's an implication there for us. Think about that for a moment. First of all, who is the church, folks? Who's the church? You are. It's not the building. You understand? The implication in the text is never a building. It's not the organization. It's not the, the you know, we're in a corporation. We're, we're incorporated. We're, it's not the corporation with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That, that's not the church. The church is literally the people. So what goes on with the people, Jesus says, I have an experiential knowledge of what goes on among you. Isn't that an awesome thought? Now hold on a second. That's a scary thought. If you think about it. Because sometimes we live our lives with this concept, well, it's just me. And he doesn't know. Believe me, he knows. He knows everything. He knows exactly. In fact, can I be honest with you? Uh, even, even our understanding of knowledge is different. Like, I could see someone do something. Let's say Billy Bob is sitting here, and, and Billy Bob, and I see Billy Bob do something. All I know is what I see. God and his knowledge is so deep, he knows what you feel, what you're thinking. Because, I mean, you may think you know your spouse, like you've been with them long enough that you can almost guess what they're going to do now, but you'll never know what they're thinking. You understand? You're not a mind reader. God, who indwells you, knows exactly how you feel. So he's saying to this church, I have an intimate knowledge of everything that's going on among you. That should keep us humble. Let's go on now. He goes on and says, he commends them for their difficult situation. So he is aware that they are living where Satan is worshipped. They're living where Satan is worshipped. This may refer to the great temple of, uh, I'm not sure of the Greek, Greek god here, but it's a god of healing which was represented by the form of of a serpent. In this town, they had a, it was also known for a place for healing, and they had a, they had a temple there. It was a major temple, and the major significant representation of that god was a snake. And, of course, from the Scripture, we know that the snake is often representative of who? Satan. So he's aware that they are living in a very pagan place. God's aware of that. Now, let's stop for a moment. How many of you would say it's pretty easy to live your Christian life today? How many of you would say, yeah, pretty easy to live your Christian life today? Nobody, right? How many of you would say, it's pretty tough for me to have my testimony where I work, where I play, who I hang out with. It's pretty tough for me to maintain my Christian testimony there. How many of you would say that? All of us would, wouldn't we? Okay, here's what I want you to understand. First of all, why is it tough, folks? Okay, you've got people around you who are wanting to influence you into bad habits. All right, good. Peer pressure, okay, same thing that Bruce was saying there. Anybody else? A lot of distractions. We live in a sensual society. Yeah, there's such a small percentage, you hear what Steve said, there's such a small percentage of people who are actually trying to live what they believe. Most people, they just don't give up, they don't want to, or they assume everybody's just a hypocrite or something. You know, I, I've been doing some premarital with some couples that I'm going to be marrying here soon, 
And, and I told them. I, they were shocked when I told them. And here's what I told them. I, I want them to have a realistic view of marriage. I said, I want you to understand that everybody in the world is going to try to break you up. Everybody in the world is going to try to break you up. That's just reality. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, think about it. When you've got a problem and you spill the beans at work, their, their, their thing isn't going to be you work it out. Their thing is going to be you need to duff that rascal. You don't need to put up with that. And I, and I got true. That's the culture we live in. You live in a society where it's tough to be a believer. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because Jesus is saying to this church, which has implications for you and I, I'm aware of where you're living. I'm aware of the influence around you. Because sometimes, here's the thing, folks, isn't it true? We often think we're alone in our Christian life. Isn't it true? We often think, like, God, you're abandoning me. It's, I don't want to go to work today. It's going to be tough. I've got that one, one rascal there that's, you know, he's just giving me the raspberries all the time. But he's just mocking me and, and everything. And, and, and the reality is, is Jesus is saying, I'm aware of where you're living. I'm aware of your difficult circumstance of how tough it is. I'm aware. I know what's going on. Now, here's, here's the other, one thing he wants to point out about them. Here's what he says. Christ knew that they remained true in spite of persecution. So here he's commending them. He's saying, you're in a tough circumstance. You're in a tough situation. And here's the reality. You're staying true, and I know that. You're staying true to what you believe. You're staying true to your faith, even in spite of how difficult circumstances are. He's commending them for that. Now, that should be an encouragement to us, because our tendency is, because I think Denny said it's peer pressure. Bruce mentioned about the influences. The fact of the matter is, everything's going to try to mold you and bend you to whatever's accepted. And it's easy, isn't it, to give in? Isn't it? I've been there. I'm not talking to somebody who doesn't understand. It's easy just to go with the flow, because when you go with the flow, there aren't going to be any problems. Or at least you don't think there are going to be any problems. But that's never true either. So the reality is, is he's saying he knew that they remained true. So the encouragement to us is remain true. Now, the other thing is that they suffered martyrdom. Here's what he said. Christ knew that some had suffered martyrdom for their faith. He knew that some of them had literally given their lives for their faith. Now he gives them a rebuke. When we look at verse 14 and 15, he's going to mention specifically two specific uh, sins that they had engaged in, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we're going to talk about what this group was um, dealing with here. First of all, in the rebuke, verse 14 and 15, he rebukes them for the doctrine of Balaam. We see that in verse 14. Uh, what it is here, the doctrine of Balaam is this. They were allowing compromise in their morality. They were allowing compromise in their morality. How many of you remember the story of Balaam from, I think it's the book of Numbers? Uh, how many remember? Balaam the prophet? Remember, I'll, I'll explain to you Balaam the prophet real quick. We won't go to the passage, but I'll, I'll just give you an overview of Balaam. 
Balaam was a prophet of God. Do you understand, even when God called out Israel, there were other people who believed in God at that time. And there was a prophet who spoke for God by the name of Balaam. He was of the Midianites. Now, Balak, who is this king who does not want Israel to come, goes and sends emissaries, he sends people to Balaam to say, come and curse Israel. Come and give a false, a bad prophecy concerning Israel. And we're going to give you all this money. Now Balaam goes to God and prays and says, God, they're asking me to come do this. Should I go do this? And God says, no. So he sends back the word and says, no, I can't do it. So, so Barak sends more money. And guess what he does? He already knows what God says. God said what, folks? He said, no, don't do it. Here's what Balaam does. Balaam goes one more time and says, God, I, maybe, maybe you didn't understand, Lord. Uh, the money's bigger this time. No, he didn't say that, but you know that's going through his mind. Uh, is it okay? And God said, no. Don't do it. I think it's the third time that Barak sends another emissary with even more money. He goes again, and God says no, but this time Balaam decides, well, you know, we'll just go look. And he gets on a donkey, and everybody knows the story of the donkey, right? You know, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, ready to kill him, and the donkey's got sense. He, he goes up against the wall, and, and Balak's beating his donkey. Balaam's beating his donkey, excuse me. And the donkey speaks to him. Now, if you notice, when you read the passage, it's interesting. It's like, Balaam's like, no big deal. Like, every day a donkey speaks to you. Yeah, maybe it did. Okay. But, you know, the reality is, is that he sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, go, but don't curse him. So when he goes, he blesses Israel three different times. Barak gets all upset. But here's the thing. The thing that's motivating Balaam is money. So after the blessing happens, here's what Balaam does. He teaches Barak that the way to get to Israel is to cause them to compromise. And specifically to compromise in the area of introducing Barak's ladies, that is the women of his tribe, of his people, of his nation, to Israel so that they would co-marry and then ultimately lead them to worship by false idols. And it was all because of one thing. Money. Money. Here's what's going on here. This church in Pergamos, it was a wealthy town. So you've got to understand this is a place where a lot of money is flowing through. It's a healing center. It's a university. And Jesus is saying to this church, you know, I've got a problem with you. The problem is, is you've embraced this doctrine. What's the doctrine? Compromising with the world primarily for what, folks? Money. Wealth. It can happen, can't it? Where we begin to compromise what we believe for finances. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think this is happening in the church today? How's it happening in the church today? Everybody's nodding their head. Yeah, I think it is. Okay, give me some examples. How's it happening in the church today? Okay, people are chasing after money. They're more interested in that than what God's telling them. Okay, that's good, Danny. How else? Who can give you some specific examples? Teenagers. 
Uh-huh. Okay, that's good. To hear what Bruce said, Bruce was saying, you may have a job and you're trying to keep your morals, but your job may require you to bend your morals or break your morals to keep your job. That may be true for a guy who works at a job. It may be true for a businessman. You kind of squeak things, you know, to do whatever, to make money. Okay? Here, here's another one. It, it's very evident today in the church, we have industries in Christianity today. Do you know that? What are you talking about, George? Everything is driven by profit. Whether it's the church, whether it's the book industry, whether it's the music industry, do you realize it's all driven by profit? It's all about what, folks? Money. Do you think we've compromised ourselves on this altar of Balaam? You better believe it, we have. And what happens with it is you compromise your what? Morality. Your morality. So you start compromising what you believe. And I'm not just talking about the sexual area. Morality covers more than just the sexual area. It covers your ethics. It covers your honesty. It covers every area of your life. Now, let's go on now. He also talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, verse 15. They were allowing compromise in their faith. Here's what they were doing. This group suggested... This group corrupted God's people by suggesting compromise with the culture of the day. You know, first of all, culture is abstract. It can be either, either bad or good. What they were doing is that they were, they were wanting to compromise with the bad influences of the culture. And isn't that happening today? So here's what he's saying. So he's saying, guys, you guys are focused. You're, 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 you're compromising your morality. You're compromising your faith. I'm explain something to you. You know what it all has to do with? Acceptance in the community. Bottom line. Acceptance in the community. So then here's the exhortation. Christ calls them to acknowledge and turn from their sin. Verse 16, he tells them to repent. He wants them to acknowledge. Now, repentance is more than confession, folks. Confessions is, confession is this. I did what you saw me do, Jesus. But you know what? It's, it's like being, you know, you're always catching a little one in the cookie jar. Hand in the cookie jar, getting a cookie. And, and you're like, why are you doing that? I'm sorry. Next time you turn around, his hand's back in the cookie jar again. Why are you doing that? I'm sorry. How many of you heard a lot of sorries? You hear a lot of sorries, okay? But if there's no change in behavior, what, what's the deal with the sorry? It means nothing. What repentance is, is I'm sorry plus a change in the behavior. It means an acknowledgement of what you've done wrong and correcting it, doing something about it. So he's calling them to acknowledge and turn from their sin. That's what repentance is. And here's what he says to them. Look at verse 16. This is interesting. Repent, or I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. What's he saying here? He will judge them soon with his word. Don't get the picture of Jesus showing up in your bedroom with a sword ready to take you out. He doesn't need to do that. But do get the picture that God's going to judge you according to his word. You know, it's interesting. We like to look at the Bible 
and looking for all the promises. I think, I think there's a theologian that has figured out how many promises there are. I don't know what the number is off the top of my head, but there's a lot of promises there. Can I also point out to you that there are a lot of condemnations too? There are a lot of things where God says, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do that, this is going to happen. And so what he's talking about here is that God's going to come and judge you with his word. Folks, it's called chastisement. It's called being taken to the woodshed. How many of you remember being taken to the woodshed? I sure do. Dad didn't even need to leave the house. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's God disciplining you. Now, here's the promise. We are called to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. So here we are. We're talking about these things. We're talking about, okay, they're in this difficult situation. They're staying true. So obviously, if God's speaking to you, stay true where you're at. You need to acknowledge that for your life. But if He's saying to you, hey, you're compromising. You're compromising your morality. You're compromising your faith. Because you're giving in to these false doctrines over here. You need to acknowledge that. So he's saying here, if, God, if God's speaking to you, if God's saying to you, hey, you're compromising in an area of your life for this, or you're compromising your faith for that, here's what John is recording Jesus saying. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're sensitive and God is speaking to you, you better pay attention. You better pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's telling you out of what he's saying here. He goes on then, and he's going to give them some promises. Here's the promises. You will receive the blessings and benefits of knowing Christ, the bread of life. Who's the bread of life? Remember what Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And he called men to come and eat of him. Look at what the promise is here. Verse 17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Who's the hidden manna? Jesus. We're going to experience Jesus. We're going to experience the blessings and benefits of knowing him. Not just a factual knowledge, but a knowing him experientially. We're going to know Jesus. We're going to grow intimately with Jesus. He's the bread of life. Isn't that an awesome thought? You and I, if we endure, if we persevere, if we listen to what he's saying, we apply the principles to our lives, we're going to do this. Now, here's the other thing he tells us. He's going to give us a white stone. You will receive a new name and acceptance with God. It was a tradition back then that adoption was a very big thing. It's a big thing in our culture, too, but it was a really big thing to the Romans. And what would happen is, is that, you know, you could adopt anybody. You could adopt an adult. Let's say I like Tom so much, I want Tom to be a part of my family. I mean, Tom, Tom's older than me, but in the Roman culture, I could say, Tom, you're no longer going to be an Alaski. You're going to be a Canon. Yeah, wow. All the benefits of being a Canon. The only benefit is cheeseburgers, buddy, okay? All right, all right. Now, here, here's the thing. All right, now, here, here's the thing. Listen to me. And what would happen is, is there was a ritual, a, a, a thing in the adoption process, that when you went through the adoption process, you received a new name. In the adoption, what they would do is they would give you a white, are you ready, folks? A white stone with a name written on it. So it was no longer Thomas Olasky. 
It doesn't even sound right. Thomas Cannon. Okay? Okay, whatever. If you want to, ch if you want to change it to Rufus, we can. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay. You didn't like Thomas. Okay. All right. Here, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. You endure. You persevere in your faith. When you go to be with Him, you're going to get a new name. You're going to, you're going to have the, His name. You're going to be a part of His family. You're adopted into His family. You're going to get a new name. Some of you are saying, great, I don't like my name. You're not going to argue with the one He picks for you. You're going to have a new name. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful picture of our being with Jesus forever and being a part of His family. Isn't that wonderful? Because even here, we, you know, we, we, we have concepts here of like red-headed stepchildren. You know, like, you know what I'm talking about. If you've got a blended family, and I'm like, I'm just a red-headed stepchild. But in God's family, there are no red-headed stepchildren. None. Now, there might be some redheads there, but I just want to explain to you, there are no stepchildren there. Because we're going to be a part of His family. Okay, next week, we're going to look at the church at Thyatira. You thought this church had some problems. Next week, the Thyatiran church had some major problems. 